Hello, Minnesota boxing fans, and welcome to another episode of the Minnesota Fight Night podcast. I'm Brian Johnson. In this episode, my co-host, Sean Strauss, and I are pleased to be joined by Eric Hinderacher, a Minnesota boxing manager and founder of 1-2 Boxing, LLC. Hinderacher has made his mark on Minnesota boxing in recent years with fighters that include former state champion Corey Rodriguez. His current stable of fighters includes Cruz Stewart, DeLorean Carraway, Marlon Sims, Joe James, Antonio Woods, and Rayshon Thomas. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, we're pleased to be joined tonight by um, Eric Hinderacher. Um, and Eric is a longtime boxing fan, manager, promoter, um, and founder of 1-2 Boxing LLC, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so um, so Eric, what, what, can you just talk a little bit, I guess, for starters, sort of introduce yourself to some of the people who might be listening and aren't super familiar with you, um, talk a little bit about how you got involved in boxing and uh, how you became, uh, how you came to manage uh, fighters and, and found 1-2 uh, Boxing LLC. Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks, Brian. So I'm from Apple Valley, Minnesota originally, uh, just turned 34 years old. Um, grew up in the cities and have always been a big boxing fan. Uh, used to go to back in the day Uppercut and uh, the old ACR, Ron Likes ACR gym. Um, just really loved boxing growing up. Was a big fan of uh, Oscar De La Hoya, Floyd Mayweather, Kelly Pavlik, uh, Tito Trinidad, you know, Roy Jones. I was actually in Pensacola when Roy Jones beat John Ruiz uh, to win the heavyweight title and, mm. and, uh, and go all the way up to, to heavyweight and win. So always been a big boxing fan. Uh, my dad was a big boxing fan, um, but never really knew how accessible the sport was, right? Other than having gone to a few events as fans, um, gone to some of the Showtime cards up at Grand Casino Hinkley, and I'd always made it a point to try to get to some boxing shows, uh, but really was just a fan, and then started going to the gyms a little more, working on myself, and, and just having fun with it, and got to know uh, quite a few fighters, and uh, Kind of realized that we had a good local scene at that time you had you know jamal and javante and rob were amateurs you had caleb just turning pro uh, my good friend corey rodriguez uh was a good pro here in the area uh you had dave peterson you had Ceriso fort you had a lot of good young fighters that were making some noise will sean boxley at the time i don't know how much you guys remember will sean but that guy was super talented and uh it was obvious to me that there was a lot of good fighters and um you know, just wanted to, to see how I could get involved with the sport a little more um, beyond being a fan. So um, started working with some of those guys and uh, just going to the fights and, and uh, helping out with the events as much as I could, just in small ways. And eventually started uh, managing Corey Rodriguez um, right after his fight with Jamal James. So it was uh, the beginning of 2013. So um, over the last seven and a half years, I've been doing the professional boxing management stuff uh, about two years ago made it a little more formal and um, incorporated uh, one, two boxing LLC and made it into a formal company. And uh, over the years, I guess over the last seven and a half years, I've managed about 12 or 13 different fighters at any given time. Uh, right now I'm working with DeLorean Carraway, Cruz Stewart, Joe James, Marlon Sims, Tony Woods, a, a really good amateur out of Iowa who just turned pro and is two and zero, And then a really top prospect out of California named Rayshon Thomas, who's one and zero. 
Um, so I'm working with those six guys right now and then always have my buddies and, and friends in the local boxing scene that if I can get them on a show or, um, you know, get, get them an opportunity like Muhammad Kayango, who I've worked with for a long time and other guys like that, that are good friends of mine. And um, if, if I can help them out, I will. So um, yeah, mostly doing the boxing management stuff um, for people who don't really know what that means. Oftentimes I'm scouting and signing young amateur fighters and then I'm financing the beginning of their career. So there's been a lot of chatter, I think, on Twitter and other, other sites and things like that about boxing managers, what percent should they take, what's fair to a fighter. And I guess what I would say is it totally depends on what your manager is doing for you, right? I, I have a lot of friends, especially out in California, where they're really serious about the fight game, where the manager's paying for housing for years, right? They're paying 1500 bucks a month for years. They're paying for food. They're buying all their fights and that in California, that includes MRIs and echocardiograms and, you know, extremely multi-thousand dollar medicals. Um, so a lot of the managers in California over a four or five year contract might be investing hundred to $150,000 per fighter. So, um, you know, when it comes to what percentage should a manager get, so much of it depends what they're offering to their, their clients. So um, what I do is I try to sign good young fighters and then I try to work with promoters that I know um, to, you know, help make sure they're financially set to get on cards. So sometimes that means, um, yep, you know, there wasn't room on a card and I want them to be on it so I can keep them moving as a young prospect. And that means you're writing the check for, you know, their purse, the opponent's purse, plus the travel and the hotel. Sometimes maybe it's chipping in some extra money to get the right opponent. You know, maybe they're saying, Hey, we don't have the budget for a guy that can really push your guy, but you know, we think it's time to get a better opponent. Maybe I'm, I'm closing the gap and putting up, you know, a thousand extra bucks to make the fight happen. So it really depends. And, um, you know, it's all over the board, but um, usually it's anywhere from 5% to 30% that a manager gets of, of a fighter's income. And most of that's dependent on, you know, what the manager's putting into them and, and then what it's going to take to get an ROI. Um, most of us in the business, like myself, this isn't my primary job. I do it because I love the sport. I love helping fighters. But I'm also not trying to lose $100,000 a year. So like I always tell my fighters, you know, it's in your best interest to have a manager that has a chance to break even or make some money on you because then when it comes time to write a check, they're going to do it. So um, I guess that's, that's kind of what I do for fighters and then make decisions on fights, make sure they're up to date on, you know, anytime we're doing fights out of state, what are the medicals? Now with COVID, what are the quarantining restrictions? What are, you know, most fighters from California right now have to quarantine for two weeks because it's a hotspot state. So just being on top of all the different regulations and working with the commissions and things like that. Yeah, it's a big job. There's a lot more to it than people might realize. And, and I know I've heard a lot of good things about you and how you, you treat your fighters well. And that's just how uh, it doesn't always happen in this business. So I, I think you're starting to get that reputation and, and that's uh, a, a good thing for, for you and the, and the boxers you represent. So. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get a good reputation in boxing. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I've done a few small events. I've promoted a few fights and it's very easy for things to go wrong and it's hard for things to go right sometimes. So, um, you know, I think, uh, thanks for saying that, Brian. And I think that's always my goal is, um, you know, I truly believe that if myself and other people that care about the sport like you guys, if we put our time and energy into it, but we do it on the up and up and, and try to learn from the lessons of the past in ways that, you know, boxing was a less than reputable sport and, and we can, you know, 
try to treat fighters the right way and, and give the sport the coverage it deserves like you guys are doing, um, good things will happen. But, you know, sometimes it takes time. Like I said, I've been doing it seven and a half years and just now starting to get to the point where I've got some prospects that are getting some of those phone calls and starting to get relationships with bigger promoters. Um, a lot of people think they can, they can sign a fighter and Al Heyman's going to be on the phone with them in six weeks. And, you know, this is easy money, but it really, you've got to invest a lot of time. There's no shortcuts in the sport. And uh, nobody who's established in the sport wants to hear from somebody that's only been doing it for three months. It's just, you, you can't, I think I know probably about like 50% of what I wish I knew. And I've been doing it for seven and a half years. So um, I think that's the biggest takeaway that all of us in boxing, you know, if everybody had, if everybody understood how much they didn't know, um, things would probably be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Sean, any thoughts or questions? Uh, well, first of all, it's just nice to meet you, Eric. Um, you on social media, I've uh, been seeing what you've been doing, you know, off and on for quite a while now. Um, I know we've got a lot of mutual friends. Um, I think I've been at a lot of the same events as you, um, but just sure. haven't had a chance to actually say hello. So, you know, officially hello. And, uh, you know, wanted to say thanks for doing what you're doing. Uh, Minnesota boxing is obviously a huge passion of mine. Um, so, Meeting another individual like yourself who's got that passion and drive to make Minnesota great again, you know, with boxing, um, it's, that's awesome, man. So, Yeah, it's never been a better time, right? I mean, I think when you look at across the board, uh, you know, the, the last five years, what some of these guys have been able to accomplish. And um, I think oftentimes young fighters from Minnesota never thought that that was really an opportunity for them, right? That the Al Havens of the world, the Bob Arams of the world would ever see them as more than you know an opponent right and I think that's that's what's been really cool about it and now I know a lot of my younger guys you know that are in their mid-20s like Joe James came up with Rob Brandt and be on teams with those guys and spar with those guys and everybody knows Jamal and, and, and Caleb and I just had uh Cruz Stewart and Tony Woods up in Minnesota for a couple weeks Cruz lives up here but Tony came up and they were working with Caleb uh for his his camp unfortunately for the fight that fell out and uh, I think guys are starting to see that, hey, you know what, people around here, they've learned a lot over the last few years and there's connections and, um, you know, fighters from Minnesota or, or Iowa. I've got two really good fighters from Iowa. Um, Wisconsin, Wisconsin's cranking out fighters right now. I mean, it's crazy. Javier Martinez blowing up, you know, uh, getting signed with top rank. And um, they've got a couple other really good amateurs up and coming. Louis Alvarado, a heavyweight. Um, Feliciano signed with the guys out in LA, uh, Heredia, who's got uh, Jojo Diaz. So um, Wisconsin's growing fast too. And I think Midwest fighters are starting to realize that uh, they can make it in this sport. And we have the, the ability here to hook them up with promoters and, and get them fights locally in the Midwest that can get them to that level. And I think we've seen that with Jamal, Rob, Caleb. They've all been featured on local platforms too. So um, Grand Casino Hinkley especially has had all those guys on multiple times. Um, so I think that motivates fighters when they, they realize they're fighting on platforms that launched world champions. With the, uh, the COVID stuff that's going on right now, um, is there anything in the works that you know of in Minnesota to try and create essentially like the bubble or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, something maybe at Hinkley or somewhere um, where we could emulate that, but on a local scale? Yeah, so I hope I don't get in trouble for talking about this. But um, yeah, we are, we are, Corey Rapiz and I are working on something at Grand Casino Hinkley. 
Uh, we've been hoping by now to be able to announce that and have dates out there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this that makes it really challenging, apart from just the COVID protocol, right? We talked about, like, I want to bring my fighter from California. How long does he have to quarantine for? And then, of course, in Minnesota, we have multiple commissions, right? So the MLBO commission runs Hinkley, but we've been talking about doing some state title fights and the state of Minnesota, I'm not going to say they're not, but potentially may not be willing to quarantine and sanction Minnesota state fights because it's not an essential Minnesota state government function right now. So there's a lot of things that go into doing a local show right now and the commission's working together um, that make it challenging. And then the cost of the COVID testing, obviously. So to do a bubble like that costs thousands and thousands of dollars to get rapid response testing. I think last I heard when we were working with, uh, it would be a smaller TV network show that we're looking at doing. Um, but I think it was about 200 COVID tests and everybody would have to be tested multiple times. So you're talking thousands of dollars. Um, and so many people are desperate to do shows right now and need a television platform that there's not much coming back in the way of money from the TV networks right now to, to work with you. So really, uh, Corey and I are trying to figure out how much uh, we can we can put up to make this happen. And, and if we get some other Midwestern uh, prospects interested where their management teams or their promoters might be interested and also chip it in to buy some fights. Uh, I know Jesse Gomez down in Iowa has Roberto Negrete, who's 3-0, and a 21-year-old kid down there who's really very good prospect. And they're willing to invest in him. and got some other guys uh, um, around the Midwest that are, are pretty good prospects and worthy of that kind of investment. But yeah, I mean, it's really tough. And just to give you an idea of some of the things we've talked about, like how do you do food service, right? Because the casinos right now aren't really offering food service. So you have to bring your own food and then cater it in and then deliver it to your room. Um, what's the protocol before you get the first set of results back? Um, you know, how do you keep everyone separate? So I, I will say this, I think, uh, even with all the money in the world like PBC and Top Rank have, it's a big challenge. And especially on the local level for us when we're talking about regulators and employees of these places and then our, just our own boxing people, um, you know, you're asking people now instead of taking two days off work to take five days off work. And that's one of the biggest challenges is um, in what I've seen, Dimitri Salida just did a show at the Comp Gym in, in Detroit. And my fighter, Chris Stewart, was supposed to fight on that show, but his opponent pulled out. And uh, one of the biggest challenges to finding opponents is it was a Thursday night show. The first COVID test happened on Tuesday, so you had to fly in Monday, and then you couldn't fly out till Friday. So, you know, on top of whatever purse that's probably smaller now because of no fans, you're also asking the fighters to take five days off work. And, um, you know, for world champion fighters, that's not a big deal, but for guys that are 3-0, and 4-0, and 5-0 and, and still have a day job or opponents that are 5-5 five and five and have a day job, um, you know, if you're asking them to take a thousand bucks off the top and lost income to come show up, that, that's been a really big challenge. So I think that that's really, I, I hope yes, and I hope the answer is in the next eight weeks, we'll be able to pull off some kind of an event. Um, but I think that those are the main challenges we're trying to get through right now is how do we work with the regulators and then who can we get for opponents and, and who's actually, frankly, ready to fight, right? Um, a lot of guys aren't ready to fight right now. So, um, yeah, but hopefully, yes, I, I'm hoping that there's something we can do. And I'm hoping uh, in the, maybe in the late year or early next year, um, we've talked about being able to do like socially distanced tables. So we wouldn't have maybe 2000 people in the crowd, but maybe we could have 500 people um, across 60 tables. 
we could spread the tables out across the whole ballroom and, and possibly do it in a, you know, a socially distant way. So that would be a way for the fans to be able to get back um, maybe you know, in, in the foreseeable future. What's the flip side of that? Like, what's the difficulties of trying to get on these shows and the other states where they already have the established bubbles? You know, because obviously there's a line, I'm sure, of people in the queue waiting to get in. Yeah, absolutely. And so the first thing is these promoters that have the money to be able to do the bubble, whether it's Bob Arum or Al Heyman or Oscar De La Hoya, they lost two, three months worth of shows at the beginning of COVID. And they have, each of those guys has dozens of fighters under contract that are owed at minimum three fights per year. And just because we had COVID doesn't mean they get to write those contracts off and, and retain the rights to those fighters. So um, what you're seeing is, you know, when top rank got back, they did those Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday shows. And sometimes they weren't the highest quality shows, but they owed guys fights and their, their contracts were going to potentially be null and void if they couldn't get those guys fights. So there's two challenges. One is the promoters that can afford to do it generally have fighters under contract that they owe fights to. So a lot of them really aren't looking to sell slots like they would have in the past. Uh, in the past, Top Rank had no problem doing a 13th fight card and putting eight of their guys on and working with five other people to, you know, to bring in some other, other guys. Now they're really exclusively doing Top Rank signed fighters, um, at least as one half of the fight, if not both halves. Um, and you're seeing that with PBC too. I know, Brian, you and I uh, we're at a show when I think Celso Ramirez went on at like four o'clock in the afternoon at the Armory, right? And they went to like 11 at night. They're, they don't, they're doing them in a TV studio. They're doing um, five to six fights. They're not doing the 20 fight cards anymore in part to limit the number of people that are at the venue and COVID exposure potentially. So that's the first challenge. The second challenge, like you said, is the queue. I mean, every day I get calls from people saying, are you guys doing any shows up there? I've got a blank check. I'm ready to write you if you can get my three guys on the show. And I'm in the same boat as a lot of those managers. You know, I've, I haven't been able to write some of those checks since March to get my guys fights. And uh, I'm doing the same thing. I'm calling other promoters that I'm friendly with out of state or in states like Texas. Jim Erickson, who used to be the commissioner at uh, executive director at the Mille Lacs Band, who's now the associate uh, director, I believe his title is, associate executive director of the Texas Combative Sports Commission. I reached out to him. You guys having much going on down there? You know, are there any promoters down there that are looking for uh, you know, fights, looking to sell fights. Steve Walker in Kansas and Missouri is selling some slots on his local shows down there. Uh, but it's sometimes hard, you know, it's hard to get fighters from places like LA where one of my guys trains to Hannibal, Missouri and back in an efficient fashion. So um, that's part of the problem. A lot of the places that are locked down are the big metro areas that you can fly guys in and out of. Um, so a lot of my guys right now are willing to and having to drive from Minneapolis to Iowa or Kansas. Uh, Tony Woods just drove down and did a show in uh, a town of like 800 people in Kansas that was streamed on the fight TV, uh, the fight app. And I mean, we'll take what we can get, right? Um, but it really does just come down to supply and demand. I mean, the demand for opportunities for fighters right now is off the charts and the supply is not there, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, can you talk a little bit about some of your fighters and your stable? I know Cruz Stewart, for example, uh, just reading his resume, uh, what, 325 wins as an amateur. I believe he's, what, 8-0 now as a professional? Yeah, 7-0. 7-0 is 6 knockouts now as a pro. So Cruz, okay. um, 
grew up in, in Chicago doing the smoker scene. So those guys would fight multiple times per night, you know, they do the little, when he was like, you know, 10 years old, he'd fight four times in a night. And, um, when he was, I want to say 17 years old, he went to the uh, U.S. Olympic athlete residence program for boxing. And he was on the same international team with Deontay Wilder and Sean Porter and Saddam Ali and uh, Gary Russell and all those guys. Um, and then had some personal life issues that came up, uh, stepped away from boxing for a while, but he got back into it uh, and, and started boxing as a pro just a couple of years ago. And uh, he's seven and oh now with six knockouts. And, and in March, he beat Martez McGregor, who's a highly respected fighter um, out of Chicago uh, with Sam Colonna boxing. And Martez had fought uh, Chem Kilich at the MGM Grand, the fight before Chem fought Steve Nelson for the, who was the NABF title uh, that Steve Nelson now holds. And uh, Chem, uh, and uh, Martez had always held his own. We'd seen him fight some top prospects. So we knew for a seventh pro fight, that was a, a tough ask, but uh, he, he was able to drop him and get the win on the scorecards uh, after six rounds. So that was big for him. And um, Cruz were, right now there's a few, uh, there's quite a bit of promotional interest in him. So we're closing in on uh, finalizing a promotional deal for him um, that hopefully we'll be able to announce in the next two or three weeks. Um, so our side is signed and we're just waiting on everything to get worked out on the other end, but he's getting picked up by a pretty major promoter. So that's really good news for him. Um, I, yeah. yeah. I was just going to ask, how did you get hooked up with Cruz? He thought that uh, his boxing out Cedar Rapids, Iowa, wasn't he? Before he... Yeah, he, he actually came up here uh, to work in camp with DeLorean Caraway for one of DeLorean's fights. Um, so that's how I met him. Um, he'd, been, um, he'd been in the Golden Gloves that year before Cruz had. He'd started boxing again. And then um, I, I met him uh, in, in camp up here at Uppercut Gym. And I could tell he was a talented kid um, and just really wanted to assess how much he wanted to, you know, why hadn't he turned pro already? And obviously he had all the skill in the world. You know, he fought... Danny Garcia and the amateurs. He fought all these, you know, he was ranked uh, ahead of J-Rock, actually, in their weight class. It was like Errol Spence, you know, mm -hmm. Sean Porter, Danny Garcia, Cruz, then J-Rock, you know. So it was obvious the kid had, you know, the pedigree and the talent, but it was, um, you know, why had they come together? So we had some conversations around that and put a plan in place. And so far, it's been going pretty well. Um, but he's definitely, you know, he's 31 years old, has seven fights. He's ready to step up and fight. An even bigger name now, um, so we're hoping by signing with this promoter that we can maybe get him one uh, one more fight to kind of you know his first six fights all lasted less than four minutes. So you know he then he went six rounds with Martez McGregor. I'd like to get him one more fight where he can get some rounds in, and then I think he's ready to fight um, you know one of these guys that's rated in the top fifty. So that'll be exciting uh, with him. But yeah, I got hooked up with him through his work with Delorean and Camp. And how about some of the other guys you're working with? Uh, you want to talk about them a little bit? And yeah, highlight so the, the, the longest guy I've been working with is DeLorean Caraway. You guys are probably familiar with him. He's fought all the top 140s in Minnesota, uh, beat Rondale and Hooch uh, in 2019. He was a guy where the timing for the, the COVID stuff really worked out badly because he had that big 10-round win against Rondale uh, to take the Minnesota State title in August. And then we were looking at bringing him back uh, at a card, uh, actually at the Vandalay Bay against the guy in uh, uh, Inoue's team from Japan. And it was a pretty good matchup for us and good money. Um, and it was supposed to be in April. And of course that fell apart. And when you're a fighter, you know, he's got 15, he's 13 to two. He's got 15 pro fights. He's, he's fought 10 rounds before. Those are the guys that are really impacted. If you're a 10 round fighter, but maybe you're not signed to the PBCs of the world, 
it's really tough right now um, because we can, you know, kind of make a four or six round fight happen, help moving some prospects along. But the market for 10 round fights with quality regional guys, you know, who want to fight for regional belts, NABO belts, stuff like that, that's really just dropped off a cliff. So I feel a little bad uh, about how this last, you know, 12 months has gone for him coming from the highest of highs, winning a huge 10 rounder over a local guy to now we're just kind of waiting to see what shakes out. But he clean, kind of cleaned out the local scene here. And we were looking to um, try to get him in, in more of a regional level fight, but regional level boxing is really just ground to a halt. And uh, we need some time to prepare for a 10 rounder and nobody's booking shows out 12 weeks right now. So um, I'm hoping he'll be back active soon. Um, he can really box and uh, I love that kid, man. He's been a great client to me and to Jeremy Bjornberg who works with him as well. And uh, just a really good guy, good father. Uh, he's got a lot of good things going for him right now. So I'm not trying to hustle him back in the ring. Um, but when, when definitely when the fans come back, he loves to perform in front of people. So certainly when the fans come back, we'll look to have him back in a big fight. Um, he's proven he can go 10 rounds. Um, and then my, my, Younger prospects, so Joe James out of St. Cloud, Minnesota. Joe was a pretty highly touted amateur. Um, beat some guys in the amateurs that are having a lot of success now, like Thomas Lamana, who just fought um, last weekend for PBC. Beat Richardson Hitchens, actually, who's uh, headlined a couple Showtime cards. Um, and Joe was a college football player. He uh, went to Michigan State for a year and then wound up transferring back. But he's a really good athlete. Didn't start boxing until he was about 20. He's 27 now. His athletic, you know, his, his, his build, his athletic gifts, he's got so much length. And uh, his last three performances, his last three six-rounders, he's had three second-round knockouts uh, against what have previously been pretty durable opponents. So um, Joe's ready to take the next step up, and he's super dedicated. He also works for FedEx. Obviously, during COVID, the number of packages those guys are delivering, Joe's delivering like 200 packages a day. It's crazy how hard he's working, um, both for FedEx and trying to stay in shape for boxing. So. I'm really excited about that. He's got eight wins now. I think he's 8-0 with five knockouts. And uh, when I talk to a lot of the, the top local pros, he's a guy that they're really excited about seeing where he might be three years from now because um, he's really got it all that, that you would want. Um, he's just got to, you know, keep that jab long, not give up his height, make sure that he's throwing straight shots. If he can do that, he's going to be really successful. I see him having the same body type as kind of like a, a Jamal James, and he's a vicious body puncher just like Jamal is. So, um, try, kind of trying to take that same mold with him and build him up. Um, and then Marlon Sims. So Marlon's also 8-0. Uh, Marlon's dream since he turned pro two years ago has been to fight for uh, Minnesota State title at 126 or 130. So we've been calling out Ramiro Hernandez. Um, love Ramiro. And it's nothing nothing but love for him. He's 16-0, managed, trained by a good friend of mine, Jesse Garza. Uh, but we're hoping we can make that Marlon Sims versus Ramiro Hernandez fight sooner rather than later. Um, uh, he's got the belt at 130. He actually beat one of my former clients, uh, Nate Rubin, for that belt at 130. Uh, so I have a ton of respect for Ramiro. Um, he's not getting any younger, neither is Marlon. So, you know, my, uh, I think Ramiro's 31, Marlon's, I think, 28 now. So now the time's now 16-0 against 8-0. Uh, you've got a hard-hitting southpaw against a, a good um, pressuring boxer-puncher fighter. Um, Ramiro's definitely fought the better level of opposition. So, but uh, with COVID right now, you know, we're looking to make moves. So uh, Marlon wants that fight. I want that fight for him. And we're really trying to push to get that fight made. So Marlon's training his butt off. And even if they give us one week, I guarantee you that kid will be at 130 ready to fight because this is what he's wanted to turn pro. <laughs>
I see him all over social media. I don't think I've ever seen anyone promote themselves better than Marlon. <laughs> I've seen him fight man. and on social media. Yeah, so icy. I need a shirt, Marlon. I'm going to be calling you. Yeah, but, man. Um, we'll get you guys. We'll get you guys link for that. And uh, yeah, he he loves what he does. I've never met someone who always got a smile on his face. His energy levels off the charts, and uh, we'll be super excited if we can get him that type of big opportunity he's been looking for as a pro. So he did not have a big, long amateur career. He started boxing in his 20s and uh, only had, I think, about 35 amateur fights. He had a good amateur career, but uh, this is really what he lives for, and uh, that's uh, you know. That's what we're trying to do for him is get him that big fight that he's been asking for since before I even signed him, before he even turned pro. He knew he wanted to fight Ramiro. He knew he wanted to do a first state title. So um, excited about that. And then, yeah, so we talked about Cruz, DeLorean, Joe, Marlon. Um, Antonio Woods uh, is a kid I signed last summer out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, he was a top five USA, 165-pound amateur. He finished third in the uh, bronze medals in the Golden Gloves, I think twice. Um, you know, a really good fighter. The guys that were beating him in the amateurs, you know, the Raheem Gonzalez, Atif Overton, Olympic level caliber guys. And uh, he's got conditioning for days. So he's been up here twice now sparring with Caleb. And I mean, as a guy who's only had two pro fights, he can do eight rounds with top pros in, in sparring. No problem. And the kid's conditioning, he throws about 150 punches around. So we're trying to work on getting him a little more of that pro style, sit down on his punches a little bit more. But he hits hard. He's tall and long for 160 pounds, and uh, I think he could be a real nice prospect. So um, he's, he's really, you know, we've had a couple guys in front of him that uh, just kind of tough guys, you know, MMA slash boxing type guys, and he's absolutely hammered them. So I, I got to start getting him better, better opponents now uh, in his third fight and going forward here. But um, you know, my thing with new guys like Tony or Rayshon Thomas that I work with out of California. I truly believe, sometimes I catch a little flack for this, but I, I truly believe if you have the financial resources behind you, your first three or four fights should really just be about learning what it's going to be like to cut the weight. One of those first four times you're going to have a hard time with the weight cut. Something's going to go wrong in your personal life, right? You're going to get sick. There's a lot of stuff that happens to pro fighters during camp that uh, they don't know how to deal with until they've been through it. Uh, one of those first four fights you're going to get hit by somebody with either eight ounce or 10 ounce gloves on for the first time, and you're going to get buzzed. It happens to the best prospects in the world. First time they get really clipped in short, usually it's a short shot, the kind of thing that with bigger gloves and headgear on wouldn't give them any problems in the amateurs. They get rocked in the pros. So I'm a firm believer in giving a guy three, four chances just to learn what it's like to be a pro. And uh, that doesn't mean we're looking to just, you know, fight tomato cans, but um, I want my guys to get a chance to learn how to be a pro fighter before I step them up to, to the types of guys that can maybe push them a little bit harder. Um, so you'll see me with the guys I signed. Most of my guys wind up starting out 4-0, 5-0. And uh, I believe that that's the right model. You give a guy confidence. Um, and, and also you give them a chance to learn how to be a pro, find which weight they're going to fight at. Um, and I feel like if you can take off the board all those unknown variables or what happens if I have a tough weight cut or what if uh, something happens in my personal life or I don't get as much time off work as I wanted to, and they're in a tougher fight, they're more confident. They know, hey, I've been through this before. I've made the weight before. I've rehydrated before. My coaches have been working with me for three, four pro fights now. We're going to take care of this guy. So for me, that's always been kind of my model, and that's what I'm doing with Tony Woods and Rayshon Thomas. Um, Rayshon's had uh, one pro fight last November from California. He's been booked a couple of times since then, but especially being out in California right now, their gyms keep shutting down. 
you know, we need these two week quarantining periods to fly him into half these states. So um, what I can tell you guys is my next guy that I really owe a fight to is Rayshon Thomas out of, uh, out of San Bernardino, California. And that kid is so talented, it's unbelievable. He had like 10 amateur fights, but I heard about him because um, I was working with a fighter at the time, Lewis Rose, um, out of LA. And I was hearing about this kid that was going to camp with Jojo Diaz and these top guys out in, in California who had like no amateur fights and was just like really good. <laughs> and uh, a couple of, I reached out to a couple of those guys. I reached out to Ralph Herendia, Jojo Diaz manager. I reached out to Jojo himself and they're like, yeah, this kid, like he's raw. He only had 10 amateur fights, but he's like 22 years old and he's beating the crap out of guys in the gym and are signed by Golden Boy. So <laughs> I made a few connections and flew him out to Minnesota and brought him out here to spar. And I mean, the kid was unreal. He was unreal. And uh, you can just tell, like, he had all the, 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 just the twitch and the, the power that he has. It's crazy. He's just got to learn how to use it. And in his first pro fight, he actually went the four rounds. He dropped his opponent twice, but he went the full four rounds, which not a lot of people were expecting. Um, and that's part of, you know, when you only had 10 amateur fights, that's your first pro fight. You're not always going to get the guy out of there in the, the first two minutes, no matter how much talent you have. This kid has as much talent as anybody coming up anywhere. Um, so that's part of what I, what I try to do with – you know, I'll, I'll give Rayshon another chance now to cut that weight. He fights anywhere from 126 to 130, so he does cut a lot of weight. I'm usually flying him here to the Midwest from L.A., which is a little tricky sometimes. Um, his first fight was at the Winnevegas Casino in Iowa, so he's flying from L.A. to Omaha and then driving uh, all while, you know, trying to be on weight. So um, all things guys have to learn, and, and it's good for them to learn that early in their career um, and not always just be fighting locally. So I try to send my guys out on the road, even if it's – just to Iowa, Kansas, or Missouri, um, or Cleveland to uh, Milwaukee, um, just so they're not always, you know, right here in the hometown. But um, definitely yeah. trying to has a chance to succeed. That's something I think Minnesota has gotten kind of a bad rep for. You hear guys, you know, the, from out of town, you know, commentators saying like, oh, if they're in Minnesota, they just are fighting in Minnesota. Um, so I noticed that. I was looking through your guys' records and where they'd fought, and I saw, you know, Iowa, Kansas, and um, – I think I saw Fargo, I, you know, there was a couple of different places, you know, uh, in the Midwest where I, it's close, but it's out of, it's out of their comfort zone. You know, they got to get out of the state. Yeah. Sometimes fighting guys, you know, I try to match them up with guys from those States. Um, so maybe they're fighting somebody that even if I think my guy's more talented, maybe they're fighting the hometown fighter. Cruz Stewart went out and knocked out a kid from Kenosha in Milwaukee. Um, in his, I think it was his third pro. He was the other kid, I think it was, one and oh and Cruz was three and oh um and they had him out there to fight uh, the kid thought he was gonna beat Cruz you know and, and he went out there and and uh fought him 15 minutes from his house so you know I think yeah if you've got you know when your guys are ready to go and they're real prospects you shouldn't be afraid of that at all um one thing I'll say is I think Iowa is a state that is coming up strong in boxing and a lot of kids contacted me from Iowa because of my relationship with Cruz and with Tony um, but they've got some other kids down there. Uh, Pacino Hill, I think it's 3-0 now. Um, Pacino actually beat uh, Joe Hicks, I believe it was, the U.S. Olympic captain at 165 in the amateurs. Uh, and he's like 22 years old from Iowa. Um, and he's a, he's a very good fighter. Roberto Negrete, who signed with Alien Boy down there, Jesse Gomez, he's 21, he's 3-0. He's taken two really tough fights in his first three, one against Jason Phillips, where he gave up nine pounds to a kid that's was a legitimate amateur down there, and he, and he won. And then he just fought uh, in his third pro fight. He fought an 18-year-old kid who was the two-time defending 
uh, Illinois Golden Gloves champ out of Chicago named Daniel Buenaventura, who's a very good fighter. So big risks he's taking early in his career as a 21-year-old. Um, I'm looking to bring him up to spar with Marlon if we can get the Ramiro fight. So um, I made an offer to their camp to bring uh, Roberto up here and, and see what he can do to uh, get some of our guys up here in camp. But um, there's others too. Um, Diego Zuniga down there. I mean, they're, they're just stacked. That team from like 2017, 2018 from Iowa has got a bunch of kids that are going to be good pros. So it's funny how it goes. You know, Minnesota had some years there where everybody on the team is now a good pro. Um, I was going through that right now where they've got a ton of talent down there. And young kids too. There's some uh, young kids coming up down there that are going to be really good. So I think like you said, Sean, unless you kind of know the background, it's hard to say, right? Anybody could say, oh, I was not really a big, big boxing state. Well, right now, if you're putting your kid up against guys coming off that Iowa Gold Gloves team, they're fighting some tough guys. Um, you know, so I think it all depends. And um, part of the deal with boxing too is it's, it's different than the UFC. Our guys aren't guaranteed 8K to show up, 8K to win, right? Our, you know, you don't make a lot of money in the, in the early stages of boxing. So um, you do want to help a kid build some equity in himself. And I think if, if a kid trusts you to be his manager, if a guy, a guy trusts you to be his manager, uh, you put three years into him and if you make some mistakes and he leaves you three and five, um, you didn't really help that kid build much equity in him. He probably didn't need you, frankly. He probably could be three and five without you as a manager. So I try to always make sure that I'm adding to the equity of my fighters so that maybe they get to eight and oh, nine and oh, and we take a tough fight and we find out that we're not at the level that maybe we hope we were. Um, at least they've still, maybe they're eight and one at that point. Uh, we can still keep working together and there'll be money for them in some of these fights and they can have a career that's uh, you know, able to help them provide for their families that you can't have if you're one and three or two and four. Those guys don't get paid jack, right? So, um, you know, that's the other piece of it. I, I, uh, I believe that if guys are going to do it and sign with, with good managers, good promoters, you should help them build equity in themselves so that at the end of the day when they leave boxing, they feel like they got something out of it. Yeah. But it, it's it's good to hear your management philosophy. And I sometimes think about, I mean, the, where do you draw the line between a short-term gain and versus long-term building up a fighter and preparing them for a longer career? I, I think the classic example is uh, Smoking Joe Frazier and when he uh, put his own son Marvis in there with, with Larry Holmes and got, you know, Holmes knocked him out in the first round. And then, then, he, then he fed him to Mike Tyson, you know, and we all know how that ended. And some say that, you know, I know he took a lot of flack for that, but on the other hand, I think between the two fights, Marvis Frazier made a million bucks. So, you know. Yeah, it's hard to knock that. It's hard. This sport's yeah. really hard to make money in. You know, one of the first things I tell my guys that, you know, when I sign them, so, you know, I'm not trying to put a damper on this, but don't quit your day job, you know. And I just had a conversation a couple weeks ago with Rayshon out in California. He works for an auto parts distributor. And, you know, I told him, I said, my goal is going to be to get you four fights your first year as a pro put a little money in your pocket, but it's not going to pay all your bills. Don't, you know, and you need health insurance, right? Fighters, it's a tough go if you don't have any health insurance. So um, he and I just had a conversation a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's been a client of mine for about a year now. We've only been able to get one fight in because mostly with COVID. Um, but I, you know, he was telling me, yeah, how glad he was for that advice and he's still got his job. He's still about to get his own apartment. Um, he's got his medical, medical insurance and, you know, he's young. So we, we had to kick the can down the road maybe six months, but he's not destitute on the street because he, he went all in and then COVID hit. So I'm a big believer in that. I learned that from Caleb Truax. You know, Caleb fought Danny Jacobs in Chicago 
made six figures and was still working at MGM liquor warehouse, you know, for the benefits and, and to make money or on a flexible schedule. At that point, uh, I'll just take a guess. I'm guessing Caleb had made $500,000 boxing. Most guys never make $500,000 boxing. So if he was, if it was, you know, if he could make it work, I, I believe I always use that example. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the guys that we've seen, I know Jamal still does a lot of work with COD and does things outside of boxing, help secure his future. Uh, my client, Corey Rodriguez, was a very good fighter, and he worked full-time as an engineer at Medtronic, 50 hours a week, making a six-figure salary. When he'd go run at 6 p.m. every night, go train every night, uh, he beat Brandon Quarles, um, who's now like, I don't know, 22 and 3 or something like that in his last pro fight, while he was working on a new pacemaker programmer 50 hours a week for Medtronic. So, you know, if those guys can do it, I know my guys can do it, and I really encourage them, like, like Joe and, and, you know, Marlon, these guys, um, to, to, to get a job and it doesn't have to necessarily be something physical. Um, Antonio Woods is a, is a Mason. He, he lays bricks and, and does well. He's part of a, a Mason reunion down in Iowa, but he tells me, you know, that's kind of hard on his back and stuff when he's also trying to do a full training camp. So sometimes you got to make the choice between is manual labor too much. If you're trying to also be a professional athlete. Yeah, I buy that, but um, there's all kinds of jobs you can. Looks you can like uh, Marlon's a truck driver, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So Marlon's done a couple different things since uh, since he and I started working together. He was doing roofing for a while, and that's hard. Yeah. Um, now he's he's doing the long haul trucking. So Marlon's uh, an independent truck driver. He picks up routes and he mostly takes uh, cargo one way and then flies back. But he can set his own schedule. So if we know we got a fight coming up, he can take three four weeks off of driving, um, and then after the fight, he can pick up a bunch of routes. So he'll go all over, man. He, he goes out to Washington, Texas. And his thing is he likes stopping at zoos. So if you follow his social media, you'll see he's doing like the live tours. He loves going to the zoos and all the different places that he goes and visits San Diego, Atlanta, St. Louis, all over the place. So it's fun to watch these guys. But I, I'm a big believer, you know, boxing gives you some of the things you need. Um, and if you, if you take it to the, you know, all the way to the top, yeah, it can, it can take care of you. But you sacrifice a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's any shame in hedging a little bit. Some people have always felt like, well, if you're not 100% in, I don't really buy that. I think you can want it really bad and still hedge and make sure that you're taking care of your family and that all your chips aren't in one basket. I work for you know a medical device company, and I don't put 100% of my salary in our company's stock, even though I believe in what we're doing, right? You've got to make decisions that help diversify um, what you're doing. And um, I've got, at my company, one boxing, I've got a, a financial advisor that we work with, and guys make it to a level where they got some money to invest. I've got somebody they can work with to, to do that. But um, nice. I really believe in, in, you know, it's a time to become a full-time boxer, but usually it's once you're making, you know, pretty good money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jimmy Braddock was working on those docks in New York there before his uh, big uh, upset win over, uh, over Max Bear. So there's something to be said for that for, for, for sure. Favor. <laughs> Well, and more recently, I think it was uh, Andrew Concio. Uh, I was working uh, for, what was it, the, the gas company out there in California. Um, and then uh, uh, won, uh, won a world title for Golden Boy, uh, you know, on his PTO. So, you know, all the way up, you can, you can make it happen if you want it bad enough. And uh, Concio made good money in boxing, but he made a hell of a lot more money as an engineer for the gas company. So uh, he had the best of both worlds. Well, George Foreman has said that uh, when, when he got to a certain point with all the George Foreman grill and all the money he was making there, they asked him at one point if he was going to make another comeback in boxing. He said, I can't afford it. I can't afford the pay cut. So 
Good yeah. for him. Well, I tell you know, I tell anybody who I talk to about sort of the a lot of people when they hear, oh, you're involved in the business of boxing, like what does that look like, right? And it's sort of looking like tennis or golf, right? It's a tournament model sport like those sports. You've got a handful of guys making a ton of money, and, and women now. Clarissa Shields is making good money. You're seeing Katie Taylor making good money, um, but you're seeing a handful of fighters making really good money, um, and and then you know, below that, you're seeing really really good fighters maybe making, if they're lucky, 15, 20 grand a fight, getting two three fights a year at, at, at the most. So um, it's kind of like golf. There's a lot of guys barely hanging on with sponsorships at the lower end of the PGA Tour, but if you're the top 10 guy, you're rolling in money and, and boxing is very much the same way. So, um, you know, as I've tracked my friends and you know, followed the careers of guys like Jamal and Rob and Caleb, um, the one thing that I've, that I've seen is that um, just having some insight into what those guys are doing and having conversations with them, you know, they've made 50, 60% of their career purses in one to two fights. You know, for Rob, it was Murata two. For Caleb, it was the Gale two. Um, you know, Jamal now just with his last fight really started to get, uh, you know, and I don't have, you know, I don't know exactly what these guys are making, but just in terms of what's disclosed and, and just from talking to them, um, you know, oftentimes it's that one or two fights that you get, you know, the, the Danny Jacobs fight, the, the Gale one and the Gale two fight. It's the majority of what Caleb made in his whole career. So you got to get to that level to make that kind of money. So I think that's what guys don't always realize is, you know, uh, when Caleb went to, um, it was what, Arkansas to fight Jermaine Taylor. Um, he didn't make much money at all for that, you know, fighting a former world champion. Uh, in terms of what we would think of as much money, I, I guess like, I think like 30, 40 grand, something like that, um, you know, and, and that's fighting a, a former world champion, a high level guy. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a tournament model sport. And that's where the manager can have a big impact is trying to help guide guys to those big fights. Um, because if, if each one of those guys we just talked about had missed out on their biggest career payday, it would have taken a huge chunk out of what they earned. Or, or Jason Litzow is another example, right? All the local guys that we've seen, uh, you know, Jason got a couple of really big fights there that, you know, finally made some money. So I think that's, you got to, if you're going to be in this sport and you're going to give up, you know, your safety or your, your, you know, potentially your long-term health to do this, you've got to be working toward big fights. If you're not, it's yeah. a tough sport. So is there anything on the docket as far as uh, the stable goes right now? Is there any, you know, actual fights lined up or uh, is nothing? Yeah, so yet? right now, right now we're really working on trying to get something going, um, hoping they can get something going at Grand Casino. Um, if that happens, you know, we'll be looking to put uh, a bunch of my local guys on that card. Um, I'm also working with Jesse Gomez. He's trying to get his uh, Rhythm City Casino down in Iowa up and running. Um, there's a mutual interest there to put Tony Woods on that card. Tony's a good, good well-known fighter from Iowa and, you know, it'd be his third pro fight. And, uh, he'd be a nice draw. They can have fans, but they can have up to 500 fans down in Iowa. So um, looking to put Tony on down in Iowa in November. And then I'm looking for next available date, either in Omaha, Kansas, Missouri, Minnesota, or Rayshon, wherever we can get him in from California. Um, and then really for, uh, Marlon and Joe and DeLorean. It just comes down to being able to get a good enough opponent within the budget to make it worth their time to, to train for six, eight weeks and, and get back in there. And then Cruz, um, you'll hear something soon, but he's going to be signing uh, a promotional deal and then we'll hope to have him fighting uh, in the next six, eight weeks um, with that promoter. 
Um, so he's he's in he's training right now. Um, and we're looking to have him fight it. Hopefully, depending on all the quarantine rules and everything, I'd like to have him fight at 160 pounds. Um, if he's not locked in a hotel for a week or something during the wake up, but um, yeah, I'm hoping that in the next couple weeks here we should have a few things to announce and formally have some dates on the on the calendar. But uh, everyone, I think what's happening right now is everybody's thinking that seeing the numbers. I think Minnesota t- yesterday had like one COVID death. People are starting to see that there's maybe fans on the horizon. So something happened today that was interesting. Eddie Hearn won a purse bid over Lou DiBella for a fight for more than they agreed to in the past. And, and that the reason is because Eddie Hearn now gets 90 days to put the fight on because it went to purse bid. And he thinks by December he can have fans in Wales. So he paid more to kick the can down the road because he thinks he's close to being able to, to get a live date in Wales where one of the fighters is from. So I think what you're seeing right now in Iowa and Minnesota, we're not, in some people's mind, we're not super far away from being able to have at least limited attendance or like I talked about like tables. So some of the promoters are stalling a little bit right now because I think they think that, you know, uh, six, eight weeks from now, it might be on the table to talk about um, a, a limited number of fans. So I know that's what Jesse's uh, working on down in Iowa and some of the guys uh, in other Midwestern states are working on. What does that look like? What are the protocols? Do we temperature check people at the door? Um, but really hoping to at least be able to have limited fans back sometime soon. So, um, but I'm, I'm hoping we can get something stamped here for a few of these guys pretty soon. But uh, there's definitely a, a desire to try to wait to get some fans back for a lot of these promoters. Uh, I, before before I let you go, I wanted to just I, I have to ask you about uh, the recent fights we've had on uh, featuring Minnesota boxers on on PBC with uh, Jamal, of course, Jamal James winning a big fight against uh, Thomas Delorme, and also David Morrell Jr. looked really good, I thought, uh, against Lennox Allen. So, uh, what, yeah. what what was your takeaway from watching those fights? Yeah, so with the PBC fights, I mean, first I was super bummed for Caleb, like I said. Um, my guys, Cruz and Tony, were up here in camp. He looked pretty good. You know, he's had the Achilles issue, um, so he's been a little inactive the last 12 months. But um, definitely, you know, it looked like he was ready to go. And based on what we yeah. saw from Angulo uh, last Saturday night, I think Caleb would have would have beat him. So I know he's he's pretty gutted over that. Um, but uh, so definitely disappointed for Caleb. No, nobody better in Minnesota boxing. Nobody bigger gentleman or, or more helpful, frankly, young fighters. I mean, that guy uh, is a good mentor to a lot of my fighters. So. Um, bump for him. Uh, Jamal looked great. I mean, Duarme on paper was a coin flip fight. A lot of people thought it was a really bad matchup for Jamal. Um, and he hurt him a few times. And I mean, he's just continued to, to beat guys that people think he shouldn't beat. So, um, you know, I'm definitely not betting against him. I think he looked great. I think uh, he's going to, at some point here, get a, a bigger fight. Um, I hope. There's so many moving parts at 147 that I just think he's going to Eventually, he's going to get his shot, but um, you probably have to be a little bit patient to see how this next round of fights breaks out. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets, like, the loser of a Spence Garcia or something like that where, you know, a sanctioning body makes it an eliminator fight, some, something along those lines. So he's looked great. Um, seems like the Heyman team is, is uh, trusts him to show up and put on a good performance, and uh, Al Heyman's a guy you want to trust in you, so I think he's on a really good path. Um, David Morrell. Yeah, I, I think some people were, you know, they were kind of trying to do the Lomachenko angle there, right, where he's getting a <laughs> WBA interim belt in the second fight. 
Um, and some people were expecting him to come out and look like, you know, wipe the floor with Lennox Allen. But Lennox Allen's really, really tough. Uh, my friend Stephen Hyde, uh, boxing manager out of New York, manages him. Corey Rapiz actually and Lou DiBella um, promote Lennox Allen. Um, and I've known, uh, he, he fought on Rob Grant's undercard when Rob fought Mason Gurov at Frank Casino Hinkley. And he beat uh, a, a really tough kid uh, to win the WBA gold belt. So I, I have a lot of respect for Lennox Allen. I knew that wasn't going to be an easy fight. Um, I think Morell's got a lot to learn in terms of the pro style, um, but it's clear he's super talented. I can't believe he can make that weight with how big he is. You know, I think he came in at like 64, like four pounds under the limit. I, I don't even know why, honestly, but uh, he's world-class amateur talent. And uh, to be beating guys like Lennox Allen in your senior, I think it was his third pro fight. He beat Quentin Rankin in the second. Lennox Allen in your third pro fight. I don't know how you complain about that. I mean, I know if he was my client and maybe when he tried to, complain about that I just I don't know what more you want him to do you know <laughs> that's about as much as you can do at age and keep in mind Lomacheco was like 28 I think Morel's like 21 so he's still growing into his body he's still a young man and people underestimate this but I always tell people that unless you're like a real stud prospect you shouldn't turn pro till you're 23 or 24 at a minimum because we've seen in the bubble all summer long guys like Clay Collard eating the crap out of 19 20 year old prospects that are supposed to be the next big thing because uh, they can't hang with a 30-year-old who's got experience doing this. And I, I think, you know, forget that sometimes that when we see guys like Devin Haney and um, Ryan Garcia, I mean, they're, they're phenoms. They're, they're freaks. I mean, not everybody can do that at 19, 20 years old. And then, yeah, what was Canelo? He was like 15 or 16. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah, there's a kid, uh, there's a kid uh, out of California from my fighter, Rayshon's gym, named Charles Harris, who was number one rated U.S. amateur. He just turned pro at 16 in Mexico uh, this past month in August. And he's already got his second pro fight lined up in Mexico uh, in September now. Um, so he's been out to that, the Mayweather gym sparring, and that kid's a really good prospect. So I think especially with COVID, we're seeing some people take that route. There's not a lot of USA boxing going on. There's, not a, it's, there's like no shows in California. So you're seeing some of those really top young prospects saying, forget it, and going down to Mexico at 16, 17 years old and, and fighting. But um, – when I talk to him, I tell him that's that's tough, man. You don't even know if the guy you're fighting is the guy you're supposed to be fighting. And they might say he's two and twenty-two. He might be twelve and two. <laughs> um, so the Mexico thing's a whole other world. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and the last one locally, Rob. Rob looked really good against Kapolenko. You know, Kapolenko um, is known to Minnesota fighters. He beat Ceriso Ford on ESPN back in the day. Um, really dominated him. You know, and, and is a tough fighter. And Rob looked really good. And uh, um, but I'm buddies with those guys out at B&B, Bo and, and, and Red, um, and they had, they had told me that he was looking really good in camp. I know they had some, some good young fighters out there, and uh, things went really smooth for Rob in Omaha, so I'm happy for him too, and I think it looks so far like the B&B um, training for him is going well, and he's been fortunate, you know, to have Derek James um, and, and, uh, and others as well. I think I was at uh, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad was with him when he beat Murata the first time, and now he's with B&B. So uh, he's definitely gained a lot from working with those high-level trainers, and I'm sure Womack will get the most out of them, like he's doing with Jamel and Maurice Hooker and Steve Nelson, and really everybody he's working with, he's getting the most out of. So I think that, that bodes well for Rob. And the fact that he showed he's a, a step up in class from guys like that means he stays a viable contender for top rank. Um, whether he gets the third Murata fight or not, I think he's got some great things ahead of them. So yeah, things are going really well, I think, uh, overall for the state. And 
hoping I can add a couple of my guys' names to those lists, uh, get them with some of these major promoters and show, show the fans what they can do in the next year or so here. Absolutely. Well, I hope so as well. And it's good to see some more, some more talent, up and coming talent in Minnesota. And some of the guys we talked about aren't uh, exactly youngsters anymore. I think Jamal just turned 32 and, uh, you know, Caleb, of course, is nearing the end of his career. So good to see some young talent. Yeah, we need it. We need it. And uh, I think there's more on the way, you know, from what I've seen. But uh, I'm hoping that the north side gym, I'm hoping we can maybe replace uh, some of what was going on at Uppercut because that was always a place that I was able to go and see a lot of the good young amateur fighters. I know you guys well being fans have spent time there and, and know what an influence Uppercut had on our local boxing scene in, in Minneapolis. Um, so I guess that's that's really uh, what we all have to find a way to do, right, as people that care about the sport and care about it, especially in Minnesota, is uh, make sure that we got the right people and, and that we can keep getting good young athletic kids and uh, men and women interested in wanting to, to be amateur boxers. And hopefully some of them then at the top level will go on to follow in the footsteps of the guys that, that you, you called out there, Brian. And, um, you know, if, if done well, it could be a great career, but you need the right people behind you and um, you got to have the right opportunities. And I think that's part of what, why I'm excited about, you know, having these guys, like you said, that are now in their thirties, Caleb, Jamal and Rob, um, they're always willing to reach out, put in a good word, um, you know, help out a Minnesota fighter. So um, now's a good time. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Sean? Um, no, like you said, I think we've probably taken more time of Eric's than he, than he planned on. So thank you for being so, uh, so willing with your time, Eric. Um, you've got a lot of good information. Um, that's for sure. There's a lot that goes into these uh, events, like Brian alluded to earlier, um, that I know I didn't even think of. Um, and, you know, we're fans and, and looking at this stuff every day. Um, but you're, you're seeing the behind the scenes stuff. So it's nice to hear from you, you know, what exactly goes into trying to make these events, you know, and trying to get these fighters, you know, the fights and trying to get them promoted, you know, and, and all that stuff. So, you know, yeah. thanks for breaking it down for us. And I'm sure there's much more that you could probably tell us. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to, you know, whether they're fighting here or somewhere else, you know, um, and I know some of these guys are not necessarily uh, from Minnesota, but, um, you know, I, I know we, uh, we, we've adopted a lot of guys. It's like if they fight here, I think 15 times or something was like the rule, um, then they can be in the Minnesota Boxing Hall of Fame or something. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know what the bylaw is now, but um, so, you know, if they fight here, you know, we, we, we kind of adopt them. So these guys, we, we want to see them fight. We're going to cheer for them. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's I always the Minnesota fans, even if I sign somebody from out of state and bring them up here and put them on the shows up here, whether that's at Grand Casino or where else, the Minnesota fans always get behind my fighters, which is awesome. Um, so they love coming up here and fighting and, you know, we draw big crowds up here. So, yeah, anytime you guys want to chat or you've got uh, if I have fighters uh, with fights coming up, I'd be happy to put you in touch with them and Absolutely. you guys can do a breakdown with them. I know uh, one of the things that's always missing in boxing, no matter how big of a scale is, is the media attention. So we'll never turn down a chance to talk to guys like you and, and get our uh, information out there. So thank you guys so much for doing this. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a great conversation and uh, I, I wish you nothing but the best and, and same to your fighters. So. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Yeah.
Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.